Listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the Kulin Nation and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. We're bringing you environmental and social justice stories. I'm Corey Green. Money is increasingly flowing out of fossil fuel industries and into renewable technologies. Could this crisis of profitability be the final push into a clean, green future? We have here Isaac Astill from 350.org to answer our questions. Welcome. What's your role at 350.org? Thanks so much for having me on the show, Corey. My role with 350.org is a divestment campaigner. So I help individuals and institutions move their money away from the fossil fuel industry. And our listeners would be fairly familiar with your divestments program, but can you just uh, give us a bit of an introduction and an update about it? Yeah, sure. So divestment itself is based on a very simple premise. Uh, If it's wrong to wreck the environment, then it's wrong to profit from that wreckage. And at the moment, some of the companies that are most responsible for wrecking the environment and and, and wrecking our precious climate are coal, oil and gas companies. So divestment literally refers to the opposite of investment. And um, right now, there is a global movement calling for institutions to divest from coal, oil and gas. Um, so since the movement's humble beginnings in 2012, some of the world's most iconic institutions have divested. You know, just some of these include Allianz Insurance, the Church of England, uh, Melbourne here in Australia, and Oxford University. And uh, in total, actually, at last count, I think we were at $3.4 trillion that have been moved away from fossil fuels. Um, and as for updates, um, yeah, I guess all I can say is stay tuned. Uh, there's always more institutions joining this movement. That sounds great. And so today we're going to talk about um, the possible bankruptcy of Peabody Energy, the, the world's largest private sector coal company. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So, um, yeah, this has been making some headlines around the world already. And I suppose, um, you know, to use a cliche, Peabody Energy is not so much a canary in the coal mine as they are a canary in the coal market. Um, they're a company that has refused to budge or change their ways in the face of a you know, global call. For a transition away from coal uh, and their determination to dig up and burn every last ton of coal they could find um, really has led them to a dead end. Um, you know, global economists have been predicting this for years. The fact is that the global economy is rapidly moving away from outdated uh, and, and dirty forms of energy and they're moving towards clean uh, alternatives, uh, renewable alternatives. Now, I've heard that one of the main reasons um, for Peabody's troubles is the coal price. Can you tell us what's happened with that? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, around the world, the global coal price has been uh, tumulting downwards. Um, it's sort of not just in the, in the world, it's, it's right here in Australia as well. And that really is because we are seeing international agreements, such as the one that was signed in Paris just late last year, um, that the world is ready to move away from coal and gas and oil and the world is ready to move towards renewable alternatives. So it's no surprise that that is reflected in the marketplace and uh, companies like Peabody Coal that have ignored those predictions and ignored those signals have uh, ignored them at their own peril. What sort of an effect do you think it will have uh, for the coal market if Peabody Coal does go bankrupt? I think it'll send another clear message that the coal industry is on the way out. Um, there's been several coal companies that have gone under smaller than Peabody. But at the end of the day, I think that because Peabody Coal is one of the biggest 
um, it'll probably send the clearest message to the market that the coal industry is on the way out. And I think the, the next natural step for energy markets around the world will be to shift to alternatives um, such as wind and solar, something that would be brilliant to see more of right here in Australia. You don't think in the short term that it might um, have the effect of flooding the market with cheap coal? I don't think it'll flood the market with cheap coal. At the moment, we're not seeing the demand for coal in the world anyway. Many of the countries that places like Australia and Indonesia, exporters of coal, have put their hope on in terms of investing you know, more coal and, and into coal mines and the, and the like. Um, those countries, such as China and India, just aren't interested in coal anymore. Both countries uh, have seen a decline in the amount of coal that they're importing, uh, amount of coal that they're burning, and both heads of state in both countries have made clear indications that they're not interested in coal. So whilst there might be a dip in the price of coal per tonne, um, I don't think we'll see an increase in the amount of coal bought up. Yeah, fair enough. So I read in an article in The Nation that uh, fossil fuel divestment means asking businesses to give up $10 trillion in wealth. How do you think that that would affect the global economy? Totally. I think to keep the climate as stable as possible, um, we know we are going to have to stop burning fossil fuels and we're going to have to keep fossil fuels in the ground where they belong. And for some companies, that will mean they'll need to stop digging up and burning fossil fuels much sooner than they'd like to. Um, But there is a very clear solution here. Here in Australia, for example, we're one of the sunniest and windiest countries in the world, and we do have a brilliant opportunity to take those uh, in a harness, those natural resources, with wind and solar. Um, And as we've already discussed, the market is already rapidly moving in that direction. Uh, It'll take civil society um, to keep that rapid transition on track and on time, but I think the wheels are well and truly in motion. You don't think it's going to be like the global financial crisis where it was decided that the banks were too big to fail? I mean, is there a a possibility that Peabody might be bailed out by the US government? I think it's unlikely. I think it's very unlikely. There is a risk. Uh, Many economists refer to it as the carbon bubble, which is where markets have become inflated based on a false premise that the fossil fuel industry will be able to continue digging up and burning fossil fuels for as long as they want. And there are concerns about what will happen when suddenly those companies can no longer do that and the market realises what is about to happen. And as a consequence, there is a large depreciation of assets leading to something which might look like the global financial crisis. There is a very clear way that as a global community, we can avoid that from happening. And it's to begin transitioning as soon as possible. It means that by the time those companies come around to that realisation, we won't be relying on them as much. It won't have the flow and effects throughout the market that it might have otherwise had. So I think the number one way that we can avoid there being a large market appreciation when those fossil fuel assets become riskier and, uh, and, and not worth as much is to begin the transition to renewables as soon as possible. And that is something we're seeing around the world already. Given that Australia is the world's largest exporter of coal, do you think that the Australian economy can survive the collapse of this industry? I think Australia has a choice. We have a choice just like Peabody Energy had a choice. Um, We can stay on a path that we're already on and continue to place false bets on the coal industry until we reach a dead end. Or we can make the choice that Peabody Energy should have made and put our bets on our incredible wind and solar resources that we have 
um, and put our bets on a clean economy and, and a safe climate. I think Australia will weather any changes in the international energy market just fine as long as we um, ensure that we're on board with the renewable transition and that we get on board as soon as possible. Can we talk about um, Hazelwood? It's one of the worst polluting coal-fired power stations in the world. Um, So it should have been closed down for three reasons. Climate change, obviously. Um, There's enough energy resources to replace it in the grid. And the Labor government actually promised to close it down in 2007, and yet it still runs. Why do you think this is? Many of the companies that have been driving climate change, so coal, oil and gas companies, uh, have their business plans all set out. You know, they're determined to stick to them. And if that means sticking around and being a polluting coal-fired power station despite many reasons for shutting down, um, then that's what they'll do. Uh, however, Peabody Energy, again, is a perfect example of what this short-sightedness leads to. Global markets are moving very clearly in a direction away from coal, away from polluting power plants. And if those business plans are moving in the complete opposite direction, um, then that is a one-way track to bankruptcy. I think we'll see more and more fossil fuel companies um, go down with their ship and head towards bankruptcy. But the smart companies will change tack quickly and get on board with a rapid transition towards renewables. So you don't think that um, there'll be a continuing of government support for projects like Hazelwood? I think in some circumstances we might see some coal companies and fossil fuel companies stick around longer than they should. They might stick around for 10, 20, 50 years. I think the direction of the market will eventually see coal-fired power plants across the world need to close down. Um, However, the problem is we don't have as much time as those plants might want uh, if we want to stay within a livable sort of climate. We need the move to renewables to not just be taking the world by storm, but for it to be happening here in Australia as well. I think the number one way people can make sure that they're a part of that process and can make sure we hold governments and, and companies accountable as part of that process is to make sure they're active and that they're being heard. Being part of a campaign run by 350.org is just one way of getting active. Um, and if people are interested, they can visit our website at 350.org.au if they'd like to learn more. Yeah, cool. And do you think that the Adani Carmuncle mine in Queensland will ever go ahead? It's difficult to say. We've had some very strong messages from the business community that they're not interested in investing in that project, um, such as the Commonwealth Bank, National Australia Bank and various international investors, and they've all made their positions very public. Um, However, the government just last week said they are contemplating sinking significant funds into the project. I think one thing that gives me hope that the Carmichael coal mine won't go ahead is the number of Australians that are getting out there and making their opposition to the mine known, loud and clear. Um, And I think we'll need to maintain that for some time. So as well as market forces, you're talking about political action? I think so, yes. I think that the market will inevitably put pressure on that mine to not go ahead because the direction of the market is quite simply uh, chasing away from coal as quickly as it possibly can. But I think that given that some governments might not be quite as with the picture as some companies are, um, it will take some political pressure if we're going to ensure that projects we don't want to see go ahead uh, won't go ahead, such as the Carmichael coal mine. Yeah, fair enough. And so this week, at least three people were killed protesting a new coal-fired power plant in Benchkali in Bangladesh. Why are people still opening new coal-fired power plants and why are they shooting people who oppose them? Absolutely. 
I think, as I was saying before, many of the companies that are driving climate change, these fossil fuel companies, they have their business plans set. They know which direction they want to go in and they know that they want to continue digging up or burning fossil fuels, uh, in their opinion, for as long as they possibly can. The problem with that strategy, of course, is that if global markets are moving in one direction and your business plan is uh, in literally the opposite direction, um, it really is just a one-way track to bankruptcy. I think it's upsetting that those companies uh, do have those business plans, but I think that what happens when they have those business plans that are simply miles out of line with the global economy, uh, Peabody Coal is a perfect example of that. Again, um, it's just a one-way highway to bankruptcy. So you wouldn't say that um, new coal-fired power stations are are opening up because the price of coal has dropped? Definitely not. And we have seen very clear market signals from the two countries that many of uh, sort of the industry were putting their wishes on, the, the Indian market and the Chinese market around coal. Um, and those clear messages are that they're moving away from coal. Imports of coal have dropped in both of those countries and in both countries, heads of states have made it clear that they aren't interested in coal. They want to move towards a renewable future as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's great. Um, can you tell us about some of the measures that um, China and India are taking? Sure. Right now, China is the biggest investor in renewable energy in the world. Um, equally, in India, um, they have a huge process of wanting to create energy and light for the many, many people throughout India that at the moment live without energy and light. And the number one source of energy they've named that they want to achieve that process with is solar energy. So we are seeing these two huge international superpowers that the coal industry was putting their bets on as those are the future coal markets go in the complete opposite direction, away from coal and towards renewables. Yeah, that's, no, that's just absolutely great. It's great to have a bit of hope on the program for once. I'm happy to be able to talk from such a hopeful place. But I think that here in Australia, it will take uh, civil society making sure that they're active and they're staying heard um, for Australia to make sure that we get on board as a country with the renewables transition the way that the world is just getting on with it. Yeah, and so how can people get involved with 350.org? Sure. I think the number one way of getting involved with 350.org is quite simply to visit our website, 350.org. You'll be able to scroll through our campaigns, see the ways that we're getting out there and helping this transition away from fossil fuels and towards the future. And can you just tell us a a bit about some of your uh, bigger campaigns nationally? Absolutely. So one of the campaigns that we're working on most at the moment is called Pollution Free Politics. It's a campaign to encourage an end to fossil fuel subsidies and fossil fuel donations being given out by and received by our government from the fossil fuel industry. One of the biggest causes of our government inaction on climate change is the influence of the fossil fuel industry. And this campaign, we're hoping to ensure that our politics is made pollution-free by getting the big polluters out of our parliament and ensuring that those donations from the fossil fuel industry are banned as well as subsidies from the government to the fossil fuel industry are banned. And if people are interested in getting involved in that campaign, they can by visiting our website at uh, 350.org.au. That sounds great. Um, Thanks for appearing on the show. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. And that was Isaac Estill from 350.org talking about fossil fuel divestment and the crisis in the worldwide coal market.
I'm Corey Green, and you're listening to Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories. It's 3CR's 40th anniversary, so this week we're going to go back into the archives and hear an interview from 1999 with famous environmentalist and unionist Jack Mundy. Enjoy. Jack, what events led you to become involved in unionism and politics in Sydney in the 60s? Oh, in the 50s, actually. Uh, that's 50s. how old I am. Um, I came down from far north Queensland to play rugby league, which is a non-Australian rules football code. And, and uh, in the early 50s for Parramatta, I became in, involved in unionism because uh, I uh, went into the building industry. It was a very rough industry. The union leadership was uh, worked uh, in tandem with the um, master builders and um, I became involved that way. Right, so what were conditions like for a BL when you first came to Sydney? Pretty horrendous. I mean, I started working in the building industry in the late 50s, about 57, and, um, in, and we formed a group called the Rank and File Committee, which had the aim of... Um, winning control for the rank and file against a very corrupt union. And um, in one year I had 17 jobs. I got soon, no sooner would you commence on a job than you, they'd pick your head out and they'd sack you. And um, so it was very traumatic years. And, and a, a strange aspect to the building industry because when I commenced in the industry, the Highest building in Sydney was 150 feet. In fact, there was a limit of 150 feet. So a 13-storey building was the biggest building in Sydney. And then they lifted the height limit and the sky became the limit. And uh, ironically, it was that that brought more and more workers together in the city. And uh, the rank and file gathered strength. We knocked over the very corrupt leadership and... When we won power, we set about a number of things that were different to most other unions. We set about the idea that all union officials should get paid the same as the workers on the job. We fought for the right of women to work in what was then an all-male enclave. We had migrants put on the um, books as uh, officials and at all delegates' conferences and mass meetings, we had six or eight of the main uh, nationalities address their members and so we sort of broadened out the whole approach and we then in the 60s fought to quote civilize the industry because as the buildings went up in one year there were 14 dogmen killed in the city because the, the narrow streets and wind channels wind tunnels and so we fought for a more dignity for building workers and to, quote, civilise the industry. And I think that won the confidence of the workers. The workers could see that we weren't just in it for ourselves. And another very controversial decision we made was uh, that all union officials should have a limited tenure of office, two terms, uh, and after two terms, they should relinquish office uh, from full-time work for one term at least, before being eligible for re-election. In hindsight, I think this was a bit too advanced because 
it alienated not only right-wing union officials, but left-wing union officials. And whereas the rank and file thought it was a great idea, in the sense it proved that the union leadership was concerned about the workers and not using union officialdom as a stepping stone to a job in parliament, or if you like to defect a job for the employers, or being appointed to the industrial courts, etc. So I think it was those sort of things that made the builders' labourers a different sort of union. The New South Wales BLF were at the forefront of social change during this time, and there were there were so many actions that you you took part in, and the rank and file workers took part in with community residents. Um, but before getting into that, I was just wondering, when did you start this sabotage of um, industrial sites. I was really interested to see how that came about with knocking the walls down and things like that. I don't know whether the word sabotage is, is appropriate. What we put forward was that we had made a democratic decision to go on strike. It was about civilising industry and lifting up the workers' wages. And the employers, because of the scattered nature of the building industry, where you've got hundreds and hundreds of jobs, uh, in the main, all the city jobs and the metropolitan areas of Wollongong and Newcastle were unionised. But if you get out, right out in the wide suburbs, well, they weren't all. And so what the employers tended to do was to try and use non-union labour to break down the conditions. And we said we were on strike, and therefore we'd made a democratic decision to go on strike, and they were deliberately trying to usurp that by using scab labour. And what we said, we'd occupy the site. And if any damage occurred to the property of the employer, it rested with the owners of the building that was using scab labour. So we were defending the democratic right. The employers, of course, and the Askin government, a very right-wing Tory government in New South Wales, very pro-development, used it as a saying, well, here's anarchy gone mad, the union's running over things there. But we were saying we're endorsing and supporting the rank and file decision that this industry is closed. And some damage occurred to sites. And of course, then the tabloid newspaper uh, would take it up and with headline news about uh, Sydney being trampled underfoot by the builders' labourers, that sort of terrible exaggeration. And uh, I think it played a part in in alienating a lot of people against us at that stage. That's why it's very interesting later on. I mean, uh, we were vilified for the action then. But later on, when we, after the Green Band period, well, we were well and truly vindicated because that civilising the union and giving the workers dignity allowed us then to embark on wider issues of social and ecological concern. So had we not cleansed the union and civilised the industry, we would never have been able to get the workers to take a more advanced action on ecology and on the environment. Just on that, I was wondering, was there a conflict of interest in workers' jobs and holding up all that development in Sydney at that time? I think, the, well, of course, at that stage, the unemployment position was not as bad as it is today, but there's always a conflict on the question of jobs and the environment. And in the main, 
the forces of reaction have been able to put forward a phony scenario saying you've got to choose, quote, jobs or the environment. Whereas, of course, we said we want both. We want jobs and the environment. We want socially useful jobs. Why should we build more and more high-rise building when there was something like 10 million square feet of unleaded office space? And yet you had 55,000 people waiting on the housing emissions list for housing emission homes. So we argued aggressively again that money should be diverted from useless high-rise office buildings, many of it standing empty for years, and moved over into areas of socially useful production of buildings that could house people. And a couple of examples, for example, in Woolloomooloo, which is looked upon as the oldest suburb in Australia, just down from the central business district in Sydney, they were going to extend the high-rise right down there and build millions of dollars of high-rise development. And we put a ban on that, and we argued that it should be for people to live in, that working-class people should not be forced 30, 40 miles out of Sydney. And Willamaloo is now is a classic example of what we did, because there, right in the heart of Sydney, you've got low-income people being able to have affordable, to use that word, housing, whereas uh, the, old, the old working-class areas like Paddington and Glebe and Balmain have been well and truly gentrified. And where they were the working class areas, it's now certainly middle upper class have moved into those areas. So I think Woolloomooloo was an example of the argument that we were concerned to link social issues what we're doing with our own labour. Whereas before there was a tendency to say, well, all the workers should be concerned about was the hip pocket was wages, wages and conditions. And we argued that in a modern society, uh, wider issues, quality of life issues, uh, should become a part of the union's concern. What was the view of the union on slum clearance um, of working class homes to build commission flats for public housing? Well, it, it's uh, for those that know Sydney, it's almost uh, unbelievable now to think that in the 50s and 60s, early 60s, Paddington, which is built on the hills, a undulating area, which is now a working class area, was going to be all flattened and, uh, and high-rise development put in. The same thing was going to happen with the rocks. So I think that the movement of the time brought together uh, people who felt that they had some rights, like uh, I think that the union becoming involved in social issues meant that people who were fighting against leaving the rocks or leaving Woolloomooloo had an ally. And so you had a strange coming together of working class um, homeowners or renters together with a union who, who were prepared to fight for them. And at the same time, you had environmental issues like uh, Kelly's Bush, which is in really a, a really flash suburb of, of Sydney, Hunters Hill, where women went down in front of a bulldozer to save the last remnant of rainforest on the Parramatta River. And as a very last resort, they came to us on the basis they heard that the builders' labourers were saying we should be concerned about things wider 
than economics. And it's now history. We came together and the middle upper class women, together with the rough and builders labourers, saved Kelly's Bush. And I think this had a tremendous appeal to people across the whole spectrum because it was a genuine coming together of working class and middle class in action about the environment. And also before that time, there was a tendency to look upon the environment as being nature conservation, being forests, rivers, lakes, barrier reef, etc. And what was shot home in the Greenbound movement was that we are Australia, one of the most urbanised countries on earth. If you take Geelong and Melbourne, Sydney, Wollongong and Newcastle, the Gold Coast and Brisbane, you've got 70% of Australians living in three great urban areas. So the built environment became a very important aspect. And uh, as the um, prominent biologist Paul Ehrlich said when he came, he couldn't believe that you could have an alliance of unions and environmentalists because it was so alien to things that he had experienced in the United States where, where big businesses set one against the other and said you're natural allies and natural enemies. He had them together and he explained it as he said it was the birth of urban environmentalism as against nature conservation. So I think they're the sort of trailblazing things that the, the Green Band movement did. And the, and the reason it did, I think we've traced it through, that you had a union that were just all working, all very, most of, most of us hadn't even had a formal education. And yet, because of the circumstance of a corrupt union before us, we were able to reach out and, and, and bridge that link that made the Green Band movement possible. It was a support we had. Like, on the one hand, we had many uh, people from the uh, employer, naturally, the, the employers were against us. Askin government was very hostile. Uh, we also had um, some union of the right-wing union officials. They were saying things like, quote, the un builders' labourers are going too far. Shouldn't be saving heritage buildings. You know, like They were saying all these things. Well, we responded by saying that anything that impinges upon the workers' rights, they've got the right to do it about. It's not only wages and conditions. And I think they were the things that, that, that attracted a lot of people, some of whom, for example, were Liberal voters. On the one hand, we had right-wing union officials uh, criticising us for doing these things. On the other hand, we had small L Liberal people in the Democrats, or the, the, in those days there wasn't a Democrat party, there was a, a Gordon Barton's Australia Party, those people coming on side and saying, look, normally we're against unions, but we find that Know, saving fig trees in the botanical gardens, saving heritage buildings, saving workers' homes, well, we find ourselves on side with the union. So that was the sort of dichotomy we had that split the normal left-right division. But just finally, just quickly, I wanted to ask, um, there was other social movements involved and I believe that there was a pink ban at some stage. Can you tell us about that? The pink band that was. Well, the, the, I remember the blue band on. The Macquarie on, University pink band. <laughs> oh, of course. Well, there was also a blue band down on Lake Pedder. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, the other thing that I've omitted to say is that because of the times, because of the Vietnam War, apartheid, 
support for our own, own blacks. For example, we were the first union to bring down Dexter Daniels and uh, Captain Major and took them around the building sites. We The tent embassy was set up in Canberra with our union, a couple of other union support. So we were involved in all those sort of things as well. And we also, as you made the point, women's social liberation, the very fact we had women working as leaders and the builders' labourers. But <clears throat> the other one happened in, Port in, in, uh, in the Macquarie University was that Jer Jeremy Fisher was kicked out of the Rod Robert Menzies College solely because he was a homosexual. And the builders' labourers, who were then building a big part of the extension, stopped work and demanded that he be reinstated. And they won the case. At the same time, Women's Social Liberation, Anne Curthoys and Elizabeth Jacker were fighting for a Women's Social Liberation course at Sydney University. Again, there was more development there. Again, the workers stopped work on that job and forced the university authorities to introduce the course. And that course was introduced. The first course on Women's Social Liberation was at Sydney University with Elizabeth Jacker and, and Jean Curthoys. So, yeah, well, we, well, it was probably in this interview, which is too short, to traverse the whole lot. But I mean, I think the important thing, of course, it was an exciting time. It was a time of change. And I'm not trying to make out that the Builders' Labourers' Union was miles ahead of any other union. What I'm saying is that they responded to the times. They responded to the calls of other people. It, I want to say it wasn't the intellect of the union leaders that made the change. The main thing you can say, they responded to people who came to us. And then through linking up together, we all were educated together. The book Green Band's Red Union has brought together a whole new generation of people to understand um, what happened or hear more about what happened with the New South Wales BLF than, that perhaps didn't know um, and weren't around at the time. In that, Norm Gallagher was report, was um, quoted as saying some pretty harsh words about yourself and, and the BLF and particularly around that whole um, notion of alliances with perhaps what might not have been seen as traditionally working class kind of uh, allies. Did you ever have any doubts about the direction you were heading in during that time? Well, I think when you're involved in, in so many struggles, of course you've got doubts, not about the overall political scenario because you're involved in so many fights. Uh, you haven't got time to work all those out. But the learning process that we received through the broad range of people and the struggles we were in, whether it's anti-apartheid, Vietnam, whether it's the Green Movement, convinced us that grassroots action and people's action was, was the most important thing. And um, so, no, there wasn't any doubting. We didn't have time anyway to worry so much about that. If we, if we talk, I don't think we should have too much time talking about, no. quote, Gallagher Monday mm. thing, because... It is true for younger people, they should know that Gallagher and, and Mundy fought many fights together. And it was only in the latter stage when uh, he or his philosophy or the particular line of Marxism-Leninism took a stand that we were wrong and petty bourgeois and darling of the trendies, quote, 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 that, that uh, we come apart. So I think for... 
anyone having a historical look at the builders' libraries, for much of the time, uh, Mundy and Gallagher and the unions, New South Wales and Victoria, fought together. Yep. We've seen over the last 30 years, we've seen a huge change in Australia and, and also in what's happened with unions in terms of amalgamations and the accord period and a long period of the ALP in government. What are your impressions of what that's meant for unions? Well, I think very few of us who in 1979-80 when Reagan and Thatcherism came a reality, very few of us thought that in 20 years' time, the turn of the century, it would not only still be viable, but would have engulfed both Labor and Liberal, Democrat and Republic, Labor and Conservative in England, all of English-speaking countries in particular, and in most of the industrialised countries, economic fundamentalism, uh, privatisation, deregulation, downsizing, became the order of the day. Very few of us believed they would last for so long. And I think that the, both the Hawke and Keating governments have got a lot to answer for because during that whole period there was a virtual absence of any rank-and-file activity. The, all decisions were made at a top level, language like consensus, blind adherence to the accord, uh, all forced amalgamations. And I'm not saying there wasn't a need for some amalgamations because 350 or 400 unions, I think, are too many. But uh, certainly not forced amalgamations. And so I think that the union rank and file lost out badly with Kelty, Hawke and Keating doing their dealing willing at a top level. So the, the union movement and the left in particular lost its way during that period and became very demoralised um, and, and, and really not very relevant. And it still isn't very relevant. Uh, though I, I sense now that there is a, a feeling that there's got to be more grassroots activity, there's got to be more rank and file activity. And I would say, not that I travel that much interstate now, but going a little bit around the states, Victoria is the best. I mean, that's how probably bad the other states are. <laughs> but Victoria is the best as regards the possibility of building new alliances. Extending that, the capital now tells workers, in fact, that capital is global and therefore workers have to adjust to that and make sacrifices as a result of that. Do you, do you feel the unions have done enough to adjust to global capital? I think it's a real challenge and I think that the union movement is pretty frightened about that challenge. Though when you look at Maitland, the leader of the miners, has made some move to international uh, togetherness, linking up, I think that they've got to do that, but at the same time they've got to fight on their home base. I don't think it's, like I see in today's age, that uh, profitability has risen 28% in last year, and, uh, and wages have risen 2.8 or something, you know, about 10 times or. And I don't think that we do enough Publicity-wise, I don't think that the union movement is sort of aggressive enough. I think that the, the horrible wreath and the manner in which he sort of walks up, walk-up type fighter, I think that we're not, the union movement is not um, left or progressive enough to fight back against that. And, it, and I hesitate to say that because about the last thing you want is some old union official coming on and saying, you know, what's wrong with things. As so, an old union official, Jack, by the way, do you think current union officials 
have enough awareness of class struggle in a general sense? No, I don't think they do. Um, I don't think they've got enough understanding of the class struggle, nor do I think they've got enough understanding of the need to build broader alliances. And they're not contradictory. I mean, certainly the most interesting part of my life was a very working class union building alliances with middle class about environmental and social, ecological issues. And I think the problems of the planet are so many that the union movement must broaden itself. I think if the union movement, on the one hand, has got to be more militant about wages and conditions, but at the same time, it's got to broaden out its activity to other community concerns, particularly like unemployment, the question of you know, things like drugs, the, the whole gambit of, of problems that confront society that should be union business as well. Mm. Jack, extending that again to socially useful work, which you're leading toward there in some ways. Uh, in Melbourne, we've seen City Link being built. We've recently seen the bulldozers and the um, and the chainsaws in Royal Park converting it into a into a Commonwealth Games facility. We've had Albert Park. Now, in each of these cases, the community groups have gone to the unions and said, "We'd like you to support us," but they haven't had that support. How do you feel about that now? Well. I mean, the reason I'm in Melbourne now is at the request of an earth worker, and I think that they're on the right line of trying to build alliances between the green movement and the workers' movement, the union movement. Um, but because of the low level of development, I think it'd be probably wrong for them to, to rush. Well, I'm, again, I'm being, buddy, uh, I'm being a, an advisor here. But I think it'd be wrong for them to rush into immediacy and take action. I think that they've got a, it's a fledging organisation, I think it's got to build itself up a little bit. Uh, just digressing, I think one of the weaknesses of the Greenbound movement in New South Wales is that we're a mile out in front and in some ways we isolated ourselves a bit. Mm. Things like limited tenure of office and others didn't help much, I might add, but because but, uh, most junior officials wanted life tenure a bit better if they could organise it. But I mean, uh, the, the, the very fact that I think that we, I think that the earthworks should, earthworkers should try and build those alliances and maybe at a later stage, I mean, I think to move into, I've only heard about the development at, um, at Royal, Royal Park, is it? Mm. Yeah, right. Well, it'd be terrific if the union movement was advanced enough to do that. It would appear to me they're not. Which you did, in fact, um, in Sydney, eh? but which you did in Sydney, of course, you saved the park up there. But um, well, we, we did it many times, but I, I'm saying when you look back, we were also, let's face it, I mean, the, the history of the Greenbound movement in New South Wales, when they couldn't bribe or coerce us, and we were offered millions of dollars to lift those green bands, they then used a part of the union movement mm. to knock us off. Just 25 years later to finish up with, uh, I'm, I'm sure the unions would now say, look, it was okay then in the 70s when there was plenty of employment, lots of work. These days, jobs are paramount. We have to get jobs for our workers regardless of what they are. How do you answer that? Well, because there was only one union that did it back then either. I mean, it's not true that uh, there was you know, relatively full employment. There wasn't full employment. There was relatively full employment. But you still made sacrifices. Those workers were consulted and they made sacrifices at that time. So, I mean... I think you've got to adjust to each period. And that's why I think now you'd have to argue for, quote, shorter working week. I mean, I think it's outrageous. 
that you, you're working, got enterprise agreements 48 and 60 hours a week, well, you've got a million unemployed. If we had a 35-hour week, well, then you could employ those million people. So, so we've missed out there somewhere. But I think the union movement has got to be more creative in what it does and not just reactive to the employers. Obviously, the rank and file and the community were very important in your campaigns and making alliances between the union and the community. And what kind of options do you, and prospects do you think there are in 1999 for those kind of, uh, of alliances to be built? I, th I think they're very numerous, the potential. They're very, the problems of society uh, are manifest, aren't they? I mean, global warming is there. Uh, it's fashionable at the turn of the century to talk about the new century. Well, now when we look at the, the fact of life, we've got four times as many people as we had in 1900. We've got more people in the world living in poverty now than the entire population 100 years ago. And yet you've got the enormous extremes on the other side, terrible riches, you know, all the things we know about. So, I mean, the, the need for community action linking with union action, the potential is unlimited. And I think unless unions do this, they will wither on the vine. If they just get in the, the plight of what USA unions have been, in fact, now USA unions have improved somewhat from a very low level and they're reaching out. I think that we've got a better history here after all, the progressive unions in this country have always been strong on peace and war, like Vietnam War and, and the Depression, uh, the evictions even in the, in the 20s and 30s. So the progressive section of the union has got a good record of struggle. But in recent times, particularly in that last 20 years, it's slipped down alarmingly. And I think there's got to be a resurgence of militancy and linking, fighting the class struggle, as Kevin said, with taking a class struggle up, exposing just how profitable they companies are, and at the same time reaching out to other organisations who are suffering very much in the, in the, in the growth of mad globalisation, people who are suffering out there, there's a lot of allies can be built for the union movement. That was archival audio from 1999 of environmentalist and unionist Jack Mundy. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Corey Green. Earlier in the show, we heard from Isaac Estill from 350.org about fossil fuel divestment and the crisis in the worldwide coal market. To find out more, go to 350.org. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this program out to you. Earth Matters was produced in the studios at 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria on the Kulin Nation. Our contact phone is 03-9419-8377 and our email is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for today, but we'll be back again next week. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.com. 3cr.org.au